Good morning, Saints. Good morning, sinners. Glad that you're all here today. Just want to, you know, shout out the obvious. It's Great Cup Sunday, right? Yeah, go Bombers. I just want everybody to know that yet last Sunday was my Great Cup. So uh, chuckle, 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 uh, Riders fans. Um, don't you just love goalposts? Like, just my favorite. Anyway. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also probably one of the worst fans around. I get mad, I turn off the TV, I yell at the TV, my kids look at me, and it's crazy. But anyway, it's good to be back again. Mark the date in your calendar, pull out your phone, February 1st. That's a Saturday night, is our comedy night. Um, you need to be here. It's a great time just to bring friends, and there's a purpose behind it. So come for a night of laughs, but also come and help us raise some money to... Uh, um, bring in another refugee family that desperately needs to find its freedom here in Canada. So uh, I just want to encourage you to do that. Mark the date, February 1st, and more uh, info is going to be coming your way. Um, life is full of questions, is it not? You know, last week was a, a very powerful week, I have to admit. Uh, I want to applaud many people in both gatherings that uh, got courage and stood out of their seats as we talked about suicide and mental illness and depression. And uh, that, you know, it's okay not to be okay. And that, as a church, we're in this together. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a stigma in our culture, and yet we need to address it, especially as a church. And I just shout out and applaud uh, all those who did respond, even, even those who came up, and, and the emails even still came in last night, just uh, of people who are just grateful that we as a church are open and here and remember that broken crayons still color right? Broken crayons still color. And that's just a, it's a, a shout out to a, some people with some amazing courage. Life is full of questions. So of course, what do I do? I go to Google and I search, what are the most asked questions of 2018? Number one, what is Bitcoin? <laughs> what is racketeering? What is a government shutdown? What is Good Friday? What is Prince Harry's last name? What is Fortnite? Uh, what is a nationalist? There was also others like how to, how do you vote? How do you register to vote? How do you play Mega Millions? How do you turn off automatic updates? How do you play Powerball? How do you buy Bitcoin? How do you screen record? And we all have our own personal questions. Am I the only one? Like, are we the only one? Uh, are we alone on earth, right? Are we the only one in the universe? Um, other questions that we ask, ask ourselves, are you hungry? Does this make me look fat? Mm, who taught you how to drive? Where'd you get your driver's license? Those are usually questions we hear out of our own mouths. Who cut your hair? Did your father dress you? Um, but there are also much more serious questions that we have to deal with, like, who am I? Why do I exist? What's the reason or what's the purpose behind life? And of course, there's always Subway or McDonald's, Pepsi or Coke, and that's all mixed into that. But today, we, uh, we're, we're going to probably look at one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves, and, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But first, let's go to our context uh, of our scripture, which is Matthew Matthew chapter 27th, and we're now coming close to the climax for which Jesus came to the world. 
And we find ourselves in the midst of his trial. And let's just pick it up and read Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 11. It says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus said. When he asked, when he was, uh, was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they handed Jesus over to him. Now, here's an interesting verse. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man. I have suffered greatly today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Well, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And then they all answered, crucify him. Well, why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. And they shouted louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Without question, the innocence of Jesus has been stated numerous times. If we look at the other Gospels and we look in Luke chapter 23, um, Pilate says it again, rightly, I've found no basis for your charges against this man. And the record of history is that Jesus is not guilty as accused. And I believe that Pilate knew sooner or later that he was going to have to deal with this man Jesus, when you think about it. Because no doubt, Pilate was very familiar with the reports of who Jesus was coming out of the countryside. Um, no doubt he heard of the, from the lips of others uh, all the reports of, and the miracles of this man from Nazareth. And as the Roman governor, his position would have had also great concerns. The Jews had proved in the past to be difficult people to uh, subdue and to rule. And so as a result, Pilate would have been very informed of anything or anyone that would be a threat to the empire. Or a threat to his personal rule. So he is familiar with the words and the works of Jesus. But here Pilate is no longer dealing with a re just a report of a person. But he's actually dealing now with that person face to face. And Jesus had been delivered to him. He's now looking at his face. And Pilate's trying to attempt to um, evade dealing with Jesus. But he's finding it impossible. It keeps coming back into his lap. And Pilate's attempt to avoid a decision about Jesus is dodging him. And he sent, you know, we read the accounts where he sends him back to Herod. He's going back and forth. He's trying to dodge a responsibility, but now he can't. And it's customary that the Feast of Passover was to release the Jew, a Jewish prisoner, whoever the people would decide or whoever the governor would up uh, and offer. And so Pilate's getting a little crafty. And he would limit their choice to two men. And he selected probably one of the most wicked men in the jail, a murderer, what we would probably call a terrorist or a revolutionary, this guy by the name of Barabbas. 
Um, it was possible, we're not sure, but it's possible that his crimes uh, probably aroused some great public indignation. And without a doubt, we just know that Barabbas was a notorious criminal. And so Pilate would have thought, you know, the chief priest wanted Jesus killed. The mass of people, you know, uh, are, are there. The masses may have want Jesus released. So he puts, he puts the leaders in a precarious situation. Do you release Jesus, this, this cool, calm, collected guy? Or do we release Barabbas, who has probably killed numerous people? He thought the choice was clear. But he underestimated their hatred for Jesus. So in the middle of the court proceedings, Pilate gets an urgent message from his wife. <laughs> How many of you guys have been that? You're in a meeting, right? And all of a sudden you get an urgent text. You get an urgent email. You get an urgent phone call from your wife. Well, what do you do? You better answer it or you're dead. That's basically how it is. Now, it's interesting because Pilate's wife has this dream and it's troubling her. And because of the dream, she knows that Jesus is innocent of any crime. Now, there's a similar, this is a similar story in history uh, of uh, Calpurnia's dream. Calpurnia was the wife of Julius Caesar, if you didn't know your history. And she had a dream about her husband's murder. So she warned Julius Caesar, don't go to the Senate during the Ides of March. And uh, of course, what does Julius do? He ignores his wife's advice. Gentlemen, <laughs> take that pointed clearly. And he gets killed. But in the ancient world, everyone from all stations of life believed in signs. They believed in omens of various kinds. It was a very spiritual world. And that they were the way the gods communicated to people. And also through dreams. Dreams were especially thought uh, a typical way the gods, including the God of Israel, by the way, spoke to the people. Now the Bible records several people receiving dreams from God. But in Matthew's gospel... We see it at the very beginning, obviously, but now Matthew chooses, for whatever reason, to include this piece of information about her dream and her message. So who's Pilate's wife, anyway? Scholars believe that the information recorded here in Matthew could have only come from a source that was close to Pilate. Think about that. Perhaps Pilate's wife is the source of that information that she herself relayed to the first Christians. We're not sure. The original audience of Matthew's gospel may have even known Pilate's wife. Uh, early church father Origen in his commentary on Matthew suggested that she actually became a Christian. We know that a, a few high status Roman women with powerful husbands converted to Judaism and then at some point converted to Christianity. We have their names written throughout scripture. There's a non-biblical account, by the way, from a book called The Gospel of Nicodemus. It's called the Apocrypha, so it's outside the canon. We don't see it as, as scripture. It was written between 150 to 400 uh, AD. And there's this, uh, a fuller account or an elaboration of Jesus' appearance before Pilate. Now, several elements in the story are fabrications, but some of them may actually contain a germ, a germ of truth. Think about this. Because in the apocryphal account here in the Gospel of Nicodemus, Pilate describes his wife, who is named Procula, or Claudia Procula, as a God-fearer. She was a gentle convert to Judaism. And she was somebody who favored the Jewish customs, which is interesting. So, and it seems likely, when we consider that Pilate's wife would have normally stayed in Caesarea, 
far, which is the governor's residence, far away from Jerusalem. But according to Matthew's gospel, which is interesting, she was in Jerusalem during Passover. Even though at that time, the city would not be considered safe, especially for the Romans. You know, as you wouldn't want to put your wife in danger, but she was there. The religious fervor is high. And as a God-fearer, if she was, she may have come to Jerusalem to observe the Jewish festival of Passover. We're not sure. This is speculation. But it makes for great teaching. Right? And, and it's plausible that Pilate's wife was a God-fearer and may have even become a Christian. But we don't really know that for certainty. She is, though, when you do your uh, religious history... She is recognized as a saint, Saint Procula, in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and also in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Isn't that interesting? They actually celebrate her feast on the 27th of October. And she's celebrated for responding to the dream she received from God and for declaring Jesus' innocence. Now, there's a little bit of history there for you. But whatever the case... All this, of all the characters in Matthew's gospel, this woman is the only person who states Jesus' innocence. As a matter of fact, if you go into the gospels, not one woman says anything against Jesus at all in any of the gospels. Something that makes you go, hmm, isn't that interesting? And so even if Procula is pagan like Pilate, the fact is that God uses her to speak truth. So God uses unlikely witnesses. Now Pilate's wife hadn't told her husband about the dream. Now Jesus is standing before her husband. She has vital insight into the situation that's going on. Pilate is already literally sitting on his judgment seat. It's in the public square. The audience is around. And he receives probably a hastily written message into his hands. Don't have anything to do with, with this innocent man. I've suffered greatly today. Now, like most pagans, she would have been superstitious. Again, experiencing visions and dreams. Not even a governor's wife would have dared uh, uh, intrude on an important trial. Unless it was incredibly serious. And we could only imagine what she saw in her dream or her nightmare. I presume it was more of a nightmare. We know it made her suffer. Whatever that meant, we're not sure. And when you think of it, though, most of us, we forget our dreams. Well, at least I do. I'm not sure about you. We may have a few that we might remember as remarkable now and then. But there, is there one dream that's impressed upon us that we remember it for years? Have you had that one dream that's been impressed upon you that you remembered for years. I know I have. And it doesn't change. It's always there. Whether it was real or not. You just can never shake it. She knew what the original verdict of innocence uh, had been. She correctly, correctly feared that Pilate would change his mind. And so in opposition to the will of the Jewish leaders. And against the determined shouts of the crowd. She sends a clear message Telling her husband what to do. <laughs> and all the married men said, Amen. Actually, she actually sent a clear message telling him what not to do. And again, when you think about it, for her, it would have taken a whole lot of courage. You know, Pilate obviously felt that the religious leaders had no basis for requesting the death penalty. 
Jesus had not incited a rebellion against Rome, but he had a problem on his hands. He wanted to please these people, but at the same time, he didn't want to arbitrarily sentence somebody, an innocent man, to death. And so the solution, he thought, was let's offer them a choice of Jewish prisoners. You know, it'll be a good gesture. Let's make it happen. So he presents Barabbas, a known murderer, a robber, an insurrectionist against the Roman Empire. You know, the other Jesus, who was hugely popular with the common people. They just welcomed him in a week ago like a king uh, a few days, right? And the contrast is evident. It's, it's mind-blowing. Surely they're going to choose Jesus. And the crowd, urged on by their leaders, chooses the guilty over the godly. The crowd chooses the violent over the virtuous. The crowd chooses the robber over the redeemer. They choose Barabbas over Jesus. And tragically, it's man's way to choose the earthly promises over the spiritual reality. And so despite the stress of the situation, I, we can only presume that Pilate actually took his wife's message seriously. But in the end, he actually ignores her request. And he calls out to the crowd, he says, what then should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? And the crowd shouts back, well, crucify him. Well, what crime has he committed? He knows the reason for Jesus' arrest is the self-interest of the jealous religious leaders. And yet Pilate fails to give Jesus justice, when you think about it. <coughs> he had all the evidence he needed to do the right thing. To release Jesus. He saw the strength and dignity of Jesus during the trial. He knew that he wasn't a criminal or a revolutionary. He knew it was uh, not just a charge that brought Jesus before him, but it was the envy of the religious leaders around him. But Pilate couldn't afford another clash with the Jews. He was known for his brutality. He, historically, he was known. He didn't shy away from bloodshed. And yet he caved to the crowd. He symbolically handed the responsibility of the murder of Jesus back to the Jews. I believe Pilate intentionally chose a Jewish ritual to denounce the responsibility for Jesus' fate. You can go read Deuteronomy 21, 1-9, where it says the law provided that the elders of the city, if they couldn't determine the identity of a murderer, in other words, somebody was killed and they don't know who did it, they would publicly wash their hands, thereby absolving themselves of any guilt regarding their inability to find justice for the murder victim. But no amount of hand washing, whether he was OCD or whatever, could cleanse the guilt that was on Pilate's hands that took place here. But the one passage that sticks out in this whole question, we even sang about it today, is what do we do with this man Jesus? No greater question can be asked by us. Because Pilate actually represents every man, every woman, every boy, every girl on the face of the planet. Because we're all actually faced with the same question. Now I know today we're all from different backgrounds, without question. I do want to talk to you about Jesus. It sounds simple, but it's actually far more complex than what you actually think. Or at least my mind thinks it's far more complex. Because if I say we're going to talk about Jesus, the question you should be asking is, well, what Jesus am I talking about? You see, everybody believes in a variation of Jesus. In some way about Jesus. So what am I talking about when I say we're going to talk about Jesus? 
Because you know that the Muslims believe in Jesus. In fact, Jesus is written in the Quran. He's mentioned 35 times. 27 times his name is Jesus or Isa in Arabic. And eight times he's mentioned as the Messiah. The Muslims consider Jesus the Christ to be one of the greatest prophets God has ever sent to mankind. Did you know that the Jews, not the ethnic Jews, but those who have given themselves to the religion of Judaism, believe in the historical Jesus? They see him as one of the many false messiahs, and he was dangerous because he had this influence that he gardened that affected the entire world. Do you know that the Hindus believe in Jesus? Some Hindus regard Jesus as the incarnation of the god Vishnu. Now, according to Hindu belief, Vishnu is periodically incarnated into the world in various forms, such as maybe a fish, a dwarf, or a human being. Even atheists and agnostics believe in a historical Jesus who was either a good teacher or at least had a life that people should emulate. Those who don't believe in Jesus in any religious way would see Jesus as simply a historical person, a lot like, let's say, George Washington or, or Abraham Lincoln. You know, sure, they did some good things, but as far as my life goes today, it's irrelevant. Then there are nominal Christians or cultural Christians. And I don't know how else to put it. They consider Jesus to be a good add-on to their lives, but not necessarily the Lord of their lives. Jesus light, as I call it. He's the type of genie in a bottle who grants us our wishes. You know, he demands nothing from us. And if we're really honest, Jesus, for the nominal Christian, ex kind of exists like an errand boy. You know, we ring our little bell, and he brings us our pillows and our cappuccinos or whatever we need to comfort our weary souls. So when I say for the next few minutes, I want to talk about Jesus. <laughs> Which one of those dudes am I talking about? Because they're all very different from one another. What I want to do is talk to you about Jesus as he presents himself in Scripture. I want to argue, uh, or I would argue, that uh, how you see and understand Jesus Christ will affect how you see yourself, and that will affect on how you see the world around you, and that will directly affect your ability to live the fullest life possible. If you brought your Bible, John, 20, uh, John 12, verse 20, it says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, Sir, they said, We would like to see Jesus. Look at their method of communication. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip then in turn told Jesus. And they told two friends and they told two friends and so on. So Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? My father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I want to draw you to um, um, some movement in the text. I want to draw that to your attention. Because first what you have are these Greeks, these Gentiles. They are outside the covenant promise of Israel. In other words, they, even if they became Jews, they were not allowed <clears throat> to be able to worship in the inner courts of the temple. In fact, there was what the Jews set aside. It was called the outer court. It was called the court of the Gentiles and for women. 
And if you cross that wall, you tried to cross to get into the inner court, you could actually be legally killed by the high priests and the temple palace guards. So the Gentiles, the Greeks, right, were not allowed into the innermost parts of intimacy with the creator God. Now in this text, what we see is that we got these Gentiles, these Greeks, who are seeking him. <clears throat> so there's this movement towards Jesus. There's this movement towards Jesus by people who are historically outside. If you read the Gospels, we see there's movement towards Jesus with the tax collectors, with the sinners. What do they do? They flock to him. They're drawn to him. So we see movement towards. But what we don't see in this text is another simultaneous movement that is away from Jesus. But it's throughout all the Gospels. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious of the day, the religious elite, the most moral, the people imaginable, the fundamentally proper people rejected the teachings of Jesus. The self-righteous people are the ones moving away. They hated Jesus' message. And so what's happening in the text, what's happening in the Gospels, is that there's this movement from being marginalized, excluded people towards Jesus. And then the self-righteous, the hyper-religious, are refusing to follow Jesus. And what they do is they move away. Movement towards, movement away. Even now, in this room, right now, there are those of us moving towards Jesus. And there are those of us moving away. And the significance of that cannot be overstated. Are we moving towards? Or are we moving away? And what's at stake is how we see and we understand Jesus. Whether or not we are moving towards him or away from him. And I would argue that's the ultimate reality. There is an ultimate reality that, that can only be known via a creator God. Then there is the reality of our imaginations. How you deal with Jesus is going to line you up with ultimate reality. What is actually real and will always be. Or this kind of pretend playground of our life that we have created for ourselves. Where we make Jesus light. The fullness of life is at stake when you think about this. The way that we see, the way that we understand who Jesus is, is incredibly important. You know, I haven't even talked about the eternal consequences and what is at stake concerning Jesus. But with that said, I still haven't answered the question, who is Jesus? Is it like the prophet Jesus? Is it like the fish dwarf Jesus? Jerry, which Jesus are you talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that's what I have in my notes. Look back at 23. Jesus says that he's the son of man. That's a title that we see throughout all the scriptures. So when, when we come across that phrase, the Son of Man, it's, it's mentioned, it's always tied to two things. It's tied to the suffering and the coming Messiah, the one who would save people from their sins, and that he would endure, and that it would also be attached to the eternality of the Messiah. In other words, that he's not dead and gone, but he's back. So what Jesus does when he's going out and he's teaching throughout the Gospels is he tries to destroy any notion that he is simply a prophet or a good teacher. He takes that off the table. By his teaching, he removes the ability of people to call him a mere prophet or a mere teacher. He says, no, the son of man. He's saying, I am God. I'm not a God. 
I am the God. When we look at all of his teachings throughout scripture. I am co-eternal with the Father. Again, I, I don't have the time to go that. I have always been. I've always be. I have not been created. He wasn't created. He calls himself basically the second person in the Trinity. This is why the religious elite go crazy. And even if you want to view the Bible as simply literature, he doesn't talk like a prophet. Prophets show up, they tell you what somebody else said, basically, right? A prophet in any religion shows up and says, hey, you know, God wants me to tell you something. You all better stop that or, you know, you all better start doing this, right? That's what, that's what the prophet says. You know, thus saith the Lord. You know, they get into it. But that's not how Jesus teaches. In fact, we see in the New Testament that people are stunned at the way that Jesus teaches. He shows up, he says, you have heard it said, but I say. Do you know who he's quoting on? You have heard it said. He's quoting God the Father. You've heard it said, but I say. That's not a prophet saying that. That's God himself. He doesn't teach as a prophet. Now, if we start going back over a, a whole list of who is Jesus, you know, he, uh, uh, some things start falling off. He can't be a prophet if he says, I'm not a prophet, I'm God in the flesh. He can't just be a teacher if his teaching says, I'm God in the flesh. He's the son of man, and the son of man is the promised Messiah who would die for the sins of humankind. The prophet Isaiah said this, and uh, that this would be what the servant of God, the son of man, would do in Isaiah 53. And it points to Jesus. Now there's something here I found really interesting in the day and age in which we live. Because we are ex an extremely conflicted and confused people. And here's what I mean by that. Because categorically, Western thought wants to reject the notion of sin. We don't like the concept of sin. You know, there's, I, I hear it. There's no such thing as sin. And so to reject that category outright and at the same time wrestle with a type of invisible guilt that throws us into a quandary. Well, there's no sin, but why do I feel this way? And almost all of us feel that if we were to be thoroughly examined, we would somehow fall short. We just don't make up even, never mind God's standards, we don't even make up to our own standards. You know, but, so what are we falling short of? Well, if there's no sin, what are we falling you know, short of? If there's no such thing as rebellion against God, if there's no such thing as iniquity, that's another wonderful word, then how do we explain our natural guilt? You know, our mom and dad didn't necessarily infuse that into us. We're born with it. How can our belief that I should be able to do what I want to do still produce guilt in our hearts? That's our culture. You know, just do what you want. It's your truth. It's your world. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, however you feel, make it happen. But then there's still this guilt in our hearts. So you see, I, I actually believe we're a confused people. We're a confused culture. We want to say that there's no such thing as sin, and I'll decide what's right for me. And yet we're plagued by guilt. We're plagued by a constant feeling as that we can never measure up to a standard. But what's the standard? See, the Bible is very clear that that little mess in our heart is actually sin. The book of Romans would say that there are three things that are true about every person in this room, myself included. Let me give you a real brief down. The first one is that we all prefer creation to the creator, don't we? We all prefer creation. You know, we don't want God. We want his stuff. You know, we don't want God. We want what God has created. And what that does is that actually does two, two things for us. First, that's really outright blasphemy if we live our life that way. Secondly, that hurts you and your ability to actually enjoy life to the fullest. 
Well, how is that? Well, if God has created all things, then what makes the scripture clear is that this creator God has created all things, not so that these things would be just enjoyed, but rather that he might be enjoyed as the giver of those things. Do you tracking with me? Let me, let me give you a, a real down-to-earth experience of joy that goes beyond any normal experience of joy. A well-cooked steak. Okay? Now, do I get an amen? A well, yes, okay. Now I'm catering to the men in the audience, am I not? Yeah. Now, by well-cooked, I mean medium-rare, right? Okay, now, if you cook it more than that, you just ruined it, bro. Eat a pork chop, you know what I'm saying? Leave the steak alone. A medium rare steak now and if you're able uh, just throw it out there a nice merlot you know surrounded by good friends and family that's an awesome night do i get an amen yes of course laughter stories that border on lies just like that just good fun that's a beautiful moment but is it not more beautiful if i see and sense and understand that all of that is also a gift from God on high. The steak is awesome. The wine is awesome. The friends are incredible. It can be enjoyed. But you're going to slam into the wall of that enjoyment if you don't realize that this has all been given to us by the Creator God. I get the experience of the joy of dinner. I get that. That, that it comes pounds past itself into an understanding that there's something bigger, that there is a creator God who loves and graciously gives to his people even gifts of common grace. You know, I don't just enjoy the steak. Uh, I enjoy the giver of the steak, right? I don't just enjoy the friends, but I enjoy the giver of the friends. I just don't enjoy the Merlot, but the giver of the Merlot. Do you see what I'm saying here? That that's exponential joy, and it's a type of joy that you can't experience outside of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have a good time outside of Jesus. In fact, only an idiot will say that, and there's a lot of idiot Christians. You can absolutely have a good time outside of Jesus, but you're not going to have a fullness of a good time if you uh, um, could have because you've built a wall around yourself by loving creation more than loving the creator. In other words, what I'm saying is that God has blessed us. Look at our culture, people. God has blessed us so much. It's okay to enjoy the blessings of God. You just give him thanks for it. You give him thanks. You acknowledge him for it. And we have intrinsically know um, you know, uh, that, you know, unless we acknowledge that God, we're chasing something all of our lives. Right? You couldn't wait to get into high school. Well, then you couldn't wait to drive a car. And then you couldn't wait to get out of high school. And then you couldn't wait to get to college. And then you couldn't wait to get out of college. And then you couldn't wait to get married. And then you couldn't wait to find a job. And you couldn't wait to buy a house. You couldn't wait to have a kid. You couldn't wait to get that kid out of your house. <laughs> you couldn't wait. You couldn't wait. You couldn't wait. You couldn't wait. Couldn't wait. Couldn't wait. Couldn't wait. And this is what happens in our life. We keep chasing. Is this going to satisfy me? Is this going to satisfy me? And so we run. Is this going to satisfy me? I need to find this person. I need to get this job. I need to get this house. I need to find this car to be seen as, I need to be seen like this. And as soon as I get that, I'll be happy. And it keeps betraying us. 
Because when we get there, we're not satisfied. And that's the wall we're hitting. It's the created stuff. It wasn't meant to satisfy you. It was meant to point past itself to what and who could satisfy you. And that's why Romans 1 reads us so clearly. Everyone in this room loves creation more than the creator. The second thing the Bible says is that we're all guilty of in Romans 1 is that we believe the lie over the truth of God. And what that means is if I could just condense that, I would say we think we're smarter than God. In my 31 years of ministry, I've sat across from some crazy people. Some of you are in this room. Hi there. But I've never sat across from one who said, I just think I'm smarter than God. I've never heard anybody ever say that. But we all live like it. We live like we know better than God. So lastly, not only do we love creation over the creator and believe that we're smarter than God, but then we actually fail to acknowledge God. And if you ever want to get a peek into the depravity of man, the darkness of the human heart, listen to the skeptics who blame God for everything bad, every bad thing, but simultaneously not giving him credit for anything good. He's the God of the bad, but not the God of anything good. And what I've learned over the years is that I've had to learn to grow in gratitude. I've had to learn to grow in gladness. And that gladness has never fed more gladness, but gratitude feeds gladness. An acknowledgement that God has been good, an acknowledgement that God has been gracious to us. It's a discipline. It, it's, it's something worth cultivating. It begins to transform how you deal with others and then how you begin to live your life. And we're all guilty of failing to acknowledge, you know, acknowledging God for everything. Every gift, every ability that you have been given to you by God for God. You got to take it and we got to use it as though you had anything to do with it. And you think that you are in charge and that you're good because you're good. That actually makes you a blasphemer. And we're all guilty of this, people. We all are. Romans is clear. And, but this is the section of the life lesson that's the least enjoyable. Because let me love you here, if I can put it that way. The Bible teaches that God hates your sin. And now, there's a steadily building opposition when we read the scriptures against you and I. And that one day, God's wrath, again, something we don't like to talk about, is going to be fully unloaded. And on that day, the Bible's language is actually horrific. And the Bible says that on day upon the, the, the return of Jesus Christ, he doesn't come back as little baby Jesus in gold-wrapped swaddling clothes, Right? But he comes as a king with a sword coming out of his mouth and a tattoo on his thigh. And the Bible says that men and women will flee from him and head towards the mountains. But the mountains will flee before the coming of the Lord. Like how terrified do you have to make it that mountains are going to run? And the Bible graphically says that on that day the streets will run with red with blood. Now our culture has no space for that. If God is anything, God is a God of love. And I might be challenging a few right now about who you think Jesus is. 
You know, God's a God of love. He's like a little fairy in the sky. He simply sprinkles dust on everyone. He would never hurt anyone in any way because God is love. To say that he has no wrath is to silently say that he has no love. For you can't divorce the two ideas. Listen, if you would have asked me if I could kill a man with my bare hands, I would say no. Why would I ever want to do that? That's ridiculous. But if 10 minutes later, you handed my firstborn granddaughter, Elena, and you put her in my arms, I immediately knew. Yeah, I'd kill someone. I would. Why? What happened? What happened at that point? I would have used my, any one of my sons as an example, but then I'd have to have dinner today, and they'd all be fighting to see who I would you know, kill for. And I'm not quite sure some would line up. <laughs> you know, when you, when you don't have girls, and sometimes they come into your family, Perspective changes completely. And what would have given birth to wrath in my heart? Love. Love. That I love this little girl so much that I would choke the life out of you if you tried to harm her in any way. And all fathers said, Amen. See, love and wrath cannot be taken from one another. And if, if you take one, you lose the other. If he's not a God of wrath, then there's nothing he loves enough to entice anger. And that's important. That means there is no love. You can't make God a sky fairy God of love and try to take away from him his wrath. And since he is described as love. Since he is such a God of love. When you read those hard passages of scripture. His wrath is stunning. It's terrible. It's frightening. And it's coming. And it's very real. And do you want to know how seriously God takes our sin? All we have to do is look at the cross. And at hell. And those two stand as a signpost of God's rage against sin. We're all guilty. Romans makes it very clear. Isaiah 53 passage says that, as well as the rest of the scripture, testifies that there is no one righteous, no one, that we all like sheep have gone astray. But now Jesus comes into the picture. Jesus shows up. One of the best verses in the Bible, John 3.16 and 17. John 3.16 gets all the press, but John 17 is the one that makes, it should make our heart leap continuously. Is Jesus saying, I have come into the world not to condemn the world, but rather to save the world from condemnation. And what Jesus does is he steps into this mess, right? This steadily building opposition, this boiling wrath towards those who love creation more than the creator, who believe that they're smarter than God and they fail to acknowledge him. He steps now into this messy world in human flesh and God the Son, as God the Son, and he lives an upright, he lives a perfect life. He fulfills the law, the law that you and I break all the time. He fulfills it. And he doesn't love 
creation more than the creator. He does not believe he is smarter than God the Father. He cannot betray himself and he acknowledges God in absolutely every way. He goes to the cross as obedient. He struggled with it. We've talked about that. Not my will, but your will. He goes to the cross on our behalf. And on the cross he absorbs all of God's wrath towards those who would believe in him. There is not a drop of wrath left to then for those who believe. Because Jesus has taken on the sins of the world. And how do we know? That there's nothing left? Because Christ rose from the grave. And if Christ doesn't rise from the grave, then maybe he didn't get it all. But because he rose from the grave, we're confident now as God's people that he took care of all of our sin, our past, our present, and remember from last week, our future. He took it all of it. And Christ has come into the world as the Son of Man, co-eternal with the Father, God in flesh, the second person of the Trinity. He stepped in. He lived the life that we could not live. He died our death. And upon faith and belief, he imputes, as the theology tells us, he imputes to us his perfect life. So God sees us. When God looks at us, we're spotless and blameless in his sight. That's who Jesus is. This is who we talk about here. This is who we sing about here. He is the Lord and Savior of the world. He is God the Son. He is the King of the universe. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a teacher, nor is he some sort of genie in a bottle. He is not indifferent. He and he alone holds the key to salvation and the fullness of life. This is King Jesus. This is who we celebrate when we gather together. This is who we talk about. This is our joy, our peace. This is the one who we serve. This is the one who we follow, who we love, who we are grateful to, and who we strive to be like. Amen? Do you agree with that? Never will there be a greater question that you have to come and decide is, what will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? No matter where we go or how bad we live, the question is always before us. Avoiding it won't make it go away. As a matter of fact, we begin to look at Scripture. There is no middle ground. 1 Corinthians, James 4, 1 Kings 18. Throughout Scripture, there's no middle ground with God. You're either moving toward or you're moving away. You know, a psychologist once asked the patient, do you have trouble making decisions? Patient answered, well, yes and no. Right? The, the crazy thing is, here's one decision you have to make. In the words of Yoda, neutral you cannot be. <laughs> Who's Jesus? He's the only door. Jesus is the only way out of sin. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so the question is not, what do I do with the church? What do I do with creeds or Christians? The question is for you and for me is, what do I do with Jesus? And it can't be ignored and it can't be a halfway. Are you moving toward or are you moving away? When Peter was asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. 
Doubting Thomas, after poking his fingers in the scars of Christ, he says, my Lord and my God. Even the demon, legion, or demons actually, legion, acknowledge Jesus, saying, Jesus, Son of God most high. The Jews didn't want justice. They wanted blood, and they got it. They said he's guilty. Three days later, God reversed the decision of the court, and he raised Jesus from the dead. And so today, Jesus Christ is living proof that he can overcome death because he's the innocent, perfect sacrifice for your sin and mine. So what's your verdict today as you leave this morning? What are you going to do with Jesus? Because really, when you think about it, it's a personal question. No one else can answer that question for you. It's also very specific. It's not about what you think about religion or whatever. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him? Because that actually settles your eternal destiny. And it's a pressing question when you think of it that way. Because now, it's a question that actually requires action. Like I said, there's no middle of the road. Because Jesus himself said, He that is not with me is against me. We're either moving towards or we're moving away. Fabulous story. I got all these old books of uh, men of history. D.L. Moody, great evangelist. He recalls the biggest blunder of his life. It happened on, on uh, Sunday night, October 8th, 1871. He's preaching a series uh, in, in what was called Farewell Hall in Chicago. And the crowds just kept coming and coming and coming. And his text on that night was, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Our text today. And so Moody, in his preaching, he looks to his community, his congregation, and he asks them, like I'm doing with you, to evaluate their relationship with Christ. Evaluate your relationship with Christ and return next week to make up your minds about Jesus and to make their decision for him. That crowd never gathered again. Moody goes, uh, during that time, he's preaching, he makes the call, he turns to um, another famous man he traveled with, uh, Ira Sankey, and, and, and Sankey would sing a solo. And the solo specifically was called, Today the Savior Calls. By the time Sankey was getting to the third verse, his voice was being drowned out by the noise that was going out in the street and the outside. And that was the day the great Chicago fire had begun. Now, this is history for you. Even at that time, the flames were now coming towards the hall where all these people were gathered in. So you had the clanging of the fire bells, you had the noise of the, the engines, you had the panic of the crowd, which made the meeting impossible to continue, obviously, and they had to evacuate. That night in Chicago, some 300 people died because of this fire. It left more than 100,000 people homeless. And in the years that followed, Moody himself wished that he had called for an immediate decision for Christ. Isn't that interesting? And so today, I say this. If you're here and you're a guest, or maybe you've been coming for a long time, if you haven't surrendered your life completely to Jesus, I'd be amiss not to encourage you to do so this morning. Maybe you're sitting there and go, I'm tired of doing it on my own. It's, it's like you say, Jerry, every time I get to the next step, I'm hitting that wall. I just don't know what's going on. I keep chasing. I keep chasing. 
Maybe you're weighted down and you need grace and you need freedom and you need freedom maybe even from addictions and you need forgiveness. Maybe you just know you need forgiveness. Forgiveness of Jesus. So this morning I'm going to invite you to do something. I don't always do this. But today I, I feel the necessity to do that because I want to pray with you. I really want to be able to pray with those who want to start a life fresh with Jesus. And so I'm just going to ask all of you to bow your heads simply with nobody looking around. I don't want to embarrass you, whatever. I just want to, if there's anybody here, I'd be amiss. I don't want to do like what Moody did and have a regret. I can't talk about Jesus and not give you the opportunity to know that somebody wants to pray with you and to be with you on that. And so if that's you, if you want to invite Jesus into your life, I just want, uh, I just invite you to put your hand up and put it down and allow me to pray with you. Will you do that? Is there anybody here this morning? Anybody? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the men and these men and women, and I thank you for those in this room who have raised their hand and just said, I'm tired, I need Jesus. And Father, for those who raised their hands maybe for the first time or maybe in a real, very real way today, I just pray that they would sense your Holy Spirit rushing over them and through them. Pray that you would flood their hearts with a release of mercy and trusting in you to lead and guide them. Father, I thank you for joy. I thank you for forgiveness that's found in that place. We love you. And my prayer is that you'd help us. For it's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Stand with me. If you lifted your hand, I want to invite you to contact the office. We want to get you involved in a life group. We want to get you connected. We want to stand along with you. We want to help you in this new journey that you have done. And if you already, maybe you already involved in a life group, we want to encourage you to tell your life group leader. Hey, I made a commitment. I did something. You did something that took a lot of guts, really. And I commend you, but let somebody know and let us walk with you. So, Soul Sanctuary, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you moving towards or are you moving away? That's a sobering question, is it not? In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. One receiving the blessing did likewise. Soul Sanctuary. As you go into your week, keep your ears pitched to the sound of God's voice calling your name. Soul Sanctuary, as you go into your week, keep your eyes peeled for the face of Jesus in unexpected places. Soul Sanctuary, as you go into your week, keep your soul poised to receive from the Holy Spirit of God and to receive the spirit of peace. Now, so go and live the church, and we start Advent next week. See you then.